The Da Da Di Da Da Code by Robert Rankin Chapter 40 Inspector Westlake awoke from a curious dream. It was a musical dream, which is to say that there was some music involved. Rather, he was an itinerant musician who traveled from town to town playing in pubs and town squares. A kind of wandering troubadour with his little banjolet and a penchant for singing the blues. And in this dream, he had set up his amp and his speaker in the middleman's saloon bar upon this small stage where bands were wont to play. And having done the setting up thereof, he had made a way to the gents, caught short, as it were, to take a leak before he began his performance. And if indeed it was not odd that he dreamed himself a musician, for in truth he had always harbored a desire to sing the blues, it was odd indeed when his peeing was done and he took himself over to the washbin to rinse his hands and beheld his reflection in the mirror above it. For the reflection of a young black man gazed thoughtfully back at him, and the inspector, staring thoughtfully at himself, and apparently without surprise, recognized at once that this young man was the blues legend known as Robert Johnson. And then he found that someone was tinkering with his trousers and suddenly awoke to behold in the face of Mrs. Corbett, smiling from the pillow next to his, with her fingers going fiddle, fiddle, fiddle. "'Well, da, da, dee, da, da,' said the inspector. "'And pardon me, please, madam, it would appear that I have walked in my sleep and settled myself down in the wrong bed upon my return.' "'Well, da, da, dee, da, da, right back at you," purred the lady of the house. "'That's a new excuse, I do declare.' And she gave a certain part of the inspector's anatomy a playful tweak. Oh, went Inspector Westlake, and then, damn, as memories returned to him in a hop, a leap, and a great big jump. Not too far away from the inspector, in a storeroom beneath the big house at Gunnersbury Park, a transperambulation of magnetic flux angled through the ether from the glass-conducting cylinders atop the heirloom, dispatched by the keyboard manipulation of the glove woman. This flux, attuned to the magnetic signature unique to Inspector Westlake, who had been magnetized by a certain boarding-house landlady the previous night during a particularly frantic session of that much-loved sexual favorite taking tea with the parson, now coalesced into an audiogram within the inspector's skull, one that had effected a selective erasure of his short-term memory. Which, given what he had read, and indeed tried to play upon his little banjole from a piece of paper that could be dated to the 1790s, in which had thrown him into fear and concern for the future of mankind, being things of an apocalyptic nature, generally, was not in itself such a bad thing. But Inspector Westlake could remember everything else, which was to say, the days previous, in all of their dire entirety. Every annoyance, every lack of communication, every thwarting of his wishes, every ignominious everything. They had not been good days for Inspector Westlake. They had been difficult days. What had made them so difficult was the fact that he was quite unable to put his finger on why they had been so difficult. But it somehow seemed that no matter what orders he gave regarding the security measures at the park, these orders somehow failed to be carried out. It was almost as if Thompson of Extra Special Ops had taken over the running of the entire operation himself and was not allowing Inspector Westlake as much as a foot in the door. Difficult, it was, and frustrating. There was certainly no lack of security. The park had been closed to the general public for the weekend, 
which had itself caused unparalleled distress to the members of the various sporting fraternities that normally played their matches there. And the men in the black uniforms were, as one might put it, entrenched. Electric fences ringed the park around. At 100-yard intervals, watchtowers bristling with slightly beyond the present state-of-the-art weaponry loomed with menace. Frogmen bobbed in the ornamental pond, surface-to-air missiles rising and falling with the ripples. A machine gun nested between the columns of the Doric temple. There were slit trenches in the Japanese garden. Once in a while, a squirrel ventured across the pitch and putt to be vaporized by a landmine. Author's note. Obviously not the same squirrel each time. End note. Within the big house, the Gunnersbury Park Museum, the location of the secret talks, several constables came and went, in and out of visibility. It was all very impressive, but it wasn't being done the way Inspector Westlake required it to be done. His way. The men in black from Special Ops spoke into their little face mics and received their orders through tiny earphones embedded in their lug holes. They did not respond to the inspector's orders. And whenever Inspector Westlake tried to get on the blower to Thompson, Thompson, it seemed, was unavailable for comment. Inspector Westlake nodded his wounded fists and fumed in the landlady's bed. "'I do like a man who's intense,' cooed Mrs. Corbett. "'As it's Sunday morning,' How about getting a little adventurous? More tea, Vicar, as it were. Unhand me, madam, Inspector Westlake rose from the bed, then returned to it in haste, still handed. I have things to do, madam, he further protested. Matters of national, indeed global, impact. As James Bond once said, said the lady of the house, best not to go off half-cocked. Inspector Westlake ground his teeth, checked his wristwatch, "'stroked at his chin, and then said, "'I suppose there's always time to take tea.' "'Mrs. Corbett grinned the kind of grin "'that one generally associates with roadkill. "'The full parson,' she whispered in Inspector Westlake's ear. "'Whisper to me, people,' came the voice of Thompson "'through many a tiny earphone into many a lug hole. "'Whisper?' went Constable Cartwright twiddling at his invisibility controls, and somewhat surprising himself to discover that whilst his upper body had regained visibility, his legs were nowhere to be seen. "'It's a security thing,' whispered Constable Cassidy, "'so we don't appear to be talking to ourselves.' "'I knew that,' said Constable Cartwright. "'I am in charge, after all.' "'Why don't you have any legs?' asked Constable Rogers. "'And where's your head gone, Rogers?' asked Constable Milky Barkid. By the numbers, came the voice of Thompson. Sound off. And all over the park, and all through the big house, blackly clad special ops fellows, a few apparently lacking for bits and pieces, sounded off. I want this whole thing done by the numbers, Thompson repeated. I want nothing, nothing, to go wrong. Sir, said Constable Cartwright, might I just ask good question, Constable? Now carry on. A right carry-on and no mistake, said Constable Paul to Constable Justice. These constables were the blue, and Paul envied those in the black. These constables in blue were on double time as it was Sunday, but had only got as far as the Gunnersbury Park car park before being halted by those constables in the black and told that they could go no further. Are you tooled up? asked Constable Justice. Eh? said Constable Paul. Are you packing heat? 
Are you carrying an unequalizer? Surely it's an equalizer, said Constable Paul. Not if you're packing what I'm packing. Ah, said Constable Paul. I say we should blast our way in. Right, said Constable Paul. Yet strange as it may appear to you, I veer towards precisely the opposite view. Does that involve any weaponry? No, said Paul. It involves you and me making a way to whatever is left of the middleman for an early Sunday lunchtime pint. We're on double time here, and if these sods won't let us into the park, let's go and guard the pub instead. Do you think there might be someone at the pub who needs shooting? asked Constable Justice. Bound to be, said Constable Paul, reversing Inspector Westlake's car out of the car park, into the road, across the path of oncoming traffic, and then slowly, but slowly, cruising it off to the pub. There are times, said he to Constable Justice, when I really do love being a policeman. Do you love your order, and do you love your country? Candles burned in a secret place, a dark and deep such place. Heads went nod in the candlelight, heads both quaint and odd. A dusty periwig was to be seen, and an antique female coiffure. And are we loyal to our calling, we of the secret order that is beyond the secretest of all other secret orders? We are loyal, went those addressed. A gloved hand or two were raised. I feel, said the speaker, that today the triumph will be ours. But not ours, per se. You understand. And mumble, mumble, mumble went the assembled company. But for the good of all, the greater good. And the man who spoke these words stepped out from the shadows and into the wan light cast by the candle's flames. A long and gaunt tall figure was this, in a black frocked coat with a high-collared shirt and a flourish of frills and fancies, and a buckled shoe, and a stockinged calf, and rings that finger twinkled. And this fellow's cheekbones were angled and sharp, and his eyes were deep-set and all aglitter, and his beard, long and black, wore ribbons of silk, and hid the wry smile on his lips. "'Oh, my brethren,' intoned this body, "'my brothers and sisters, too,' and he offered a bow to the ladies. "'We of the order, beyond all secret orders, "'have been summoned from our time once again, "'brought here to perform our duty. "'Oh, how we shall triumph! "'Oh, how we shall bring our pneumatic arts "'to a pretty perfection!' "'So shall that be, my brother,' quoth a fellow of grey hair, and known as Jack the schoolmaster, though he was dressed as a ringmaster, he. So we shall, and our souls shall be blessed for it. Blessed for it, yes. The body in black with the great black beard cackled laughter, as one will do when one is a villain. Yes, cried he, affecting a pose that was noble and arrogant both. Today we do as we have done before. We set the world to rights. We do the doings and make it so, for such is what we do. Heads here and there nodded in mostly darkness. We will succeed. And he of the long black beard laughed. Or my name is not Count Otto Black, and we are not the heirloom gang. Oh, golly gosh. Chapter 41 Golly gosh, said the coal-black chap who drove the limousine. A fine to-do. An odd one, too. As strange as I have seen. Now that, said the voice on the other end of the telephone line, is something you should have done sooner. Excuse me, said the chauffeur. I am talking to Big Billy Bamalam, am I not? You certainly are, 
said the big Billy in question. Note, if you will, the triple-barreled surname, one of the Sussex Bamalams, I'll have you know. Excellent, said the voice. Then I have the right Billy Bamalam. What I meant when I said that that was something you should have done sooner was the speaking in rhyme. You might have established an interesting part for yourself, a black male chauffeur with a triple-barreled surname and a penchant for verse improv. Given how dull some of these blighters are, you could have got yourself star-billing. Who is this? asked Big Billy. I told you. I am the chief exec of a top London theatrical agency, and I'd like to hire your services for today to chauffeur that fine character actor, John Hurt, to a private film festival in Penge. Penge? said Big Billy. I've heard it's a really nice place, although I've never actually been there. A veritable Eden, said the voice on the end of the line. Although it wasn't really a line, because Big Billy was speaking into the handset of his car phone as he drove his black stretch limo along. Well, hum and ha and fiddle dee dee, said Big Billy. Excuse me, said the voice. Merely voicing my versatility. Did you say John Hurt? I certainly did, star of both the naked civil servant and the elephant man. Not to mention Hellboy. Hellboy? I told you not to mention that. Author's note. Alas, Spike Milligan, sadly missed. End note. Most amusing, said the voice. I thought so, but no. I regret that much as I would adore to be privileged to drive as I believe it is now Sir John Hurt. If it isn't, it should be. But anyway, I cannot. And the reason that I responded to your question in rhyme is this. As a chauffeur, and indeed owner of this here black limousine, it is sad to report that for the most part nowadays, I have to hire myself out. Nay, prostitute myself out by taking hirings from ghastly shav girls for hen nights. Yet, yet, and here I feel that there is a god who sometimes smiles upon chauffeurs with unlikely triple-barreled surnames. This very week, which is to say on Friday, and today, which is Sunday, I have been employed by some decent clientele. To wit, on Friday I conveyed a certain Andy Evans, heavy metal music entrepreneur to a pub called The Middleman in Ealing, where he made a recording. And from there, in the company of a can of audio tape to London Airport, where, to quote Mr. Evans, he intended to make away with the prize of a lifetime because I deserve it. He boarded a plane for Los Angeles, I believe, and today a yawn came from the other end of the phone line. And today, continued Mr. Bamalam, Today I am driving at this very moment to Buckingham Palace to pick up none other than Her Majesty the Queen to take her to a secret location, which, naturally, I will not divulge. Naturally, said the voice. Then perhaps if you are so engaged you could give me the name of another limo hire company whose credentials you could vouch for? Would that I could, said Big Billy, but I regret to say that I cannot. I think you will find that all the top-notch limo hire companies are busy today. Doing what? asked the voice. Chauffeuring dignitaries, said Big Billy. Master of Mole, of Kentir Cars, is at London City Airport picking up Ahab the Arab. The Sheik of the Desert Sands, sang the voice. The same. And Mr. Jones of We'll Keep a Welcome in the Hillside Motors is in Nisden picking up a Mr. Bagshaw. Bagshaw, Bagshaw, stick it up your jumper, sang the voice. Not as such, said Billy the Big. 
Then there's Morgador Firesword of Dragon Slayer Car Hire, who is frankly often rather difficult to get on the phone. He, I know, is doing a pickup from Battersea Dogs' home, a chap known as Bob the Comical Pup. How much is that doggy in the window? sang the voice. You're not far short of the mark there. And the remaining top-of-the-line stretch limo hire-out jobby person would be Mr. Esau Good of Smack My Bitch Up Motors. And he's at Breeze Norton Airport picking up Elvis Presley. There was a bit of a silence then. Heartbreak Hotel, said Billy. Jailhouse Rock? But Elvis is dead, surely. If you say so, don't ask me. I'm only a chauffeur. And are all these, what shall we call them, celebrities? Bound for the same place? Her Majesty the Queen, Mr. Bagshaw, Ahab the Arab, Bob the Comical Pup, and Elvis Presley, the King of Rock and Roll? Such I believe to be the case, said Billy. But you can't tell me where that is. More than my job's worth, I'm sorry. Are they dropping off, waiting, then picking up? Or are they dropping off, returning to base in case of a job in between, then returning to pick up? The latter, I believe. So, where would they be waiting? Were they intending to wait? Which they clearly are not. Gunnersbury Park, said Billy. The big house. Gunnersbury Park. Thank you, said the voice. And I'm sorry to have wasted your time. No problem. Big Billy replaced the receiver of his car phone. The owner of the voice switched off his mobile phone and tucked it away in the breast pocket of his jacket. A jacket that was not without interest. Although to whom must remain uncertain. Exactly what I wanted to know, he said. And having said this, he turned away, took himself over to a small wall mirror, and grinned into it. The small wall mirror was barely to be seen amidst the stacks of army-filled rations that were piled up against the walls of what appeared to be a rather untidy bedroom. The door of this bedroom now opened, and a woman of middling years adorned with a quilted nylon pink gingham housecoat and matching slipperettes entered the bedroom. "'I'm sorry to have kept you waiting,' she said, grinning inanely. "'I had to get Johnny's breakfast.' and pretend like you told me that I didn't know anything about what has been going on for the past few days. "'You did very well, my dear,' said the owner of the voice. "'You deserve some kind of reward, I believe.' "'Well,' said Johnny's mum, "'for who else could it be but she? "'It is Sunday, so we might engage in something sexually adventurous?' "'Indeed we shall. "'Shall we take tea with the parson?' Johnny's mum did some of that roadkill grinning. That would be lovely, Mr. O'Fagan, she said. Wake up, O'Fagan, called Paul, and he did some thump-thump-thumping upon what was left of the middleman's saloon bar door. This place is an almost complete ruination, observed Constable Justice. Did someone take it out with a heat-seeker? On the contrary, said Constable Paul, things got rather cold. We played a gig here on Friday night, and my mate Johnny played Robert Johnson's guitar. Most of the audience got sucked into a parallel continuum. There was some kind of transperambulation of pseudo-cosmic antimatter or something. Sorry I missed it, said Constable Justice. So, good gig then? Better than usual. Mostly the audience just chuck stuff. Friday night, both Johnny and me got blowjobs. You blew each other? From girls, said Paul, and he banged some more on the door. And we got a record contract, although we haven't actually got it as such, but it's in the bag, as it were. Constable Paul banged even more. 
It's only nine o'clock, said Constable Justice. Constable Paul gave him the old-fashioned look. Oh, yes, said Constable Justice. We're policemen. There are no such things as licensing hours when you are a policeman and you fancy a drink. How did I forget that? Because you're always thinking about shooting people. Like you're not. Constable Paul knocked even some more. He's not here, he said, or he's asleep. Or taking tea with the parson, with someone's mum. Why would he be doing that? I don't know, said Constable Justice. He did it with my mum. Shit, he might be doing it with my mum right now. It is very unlikely that the Queen Mum ever took tea with the parson. She was far too sweet and cuddly and everything. And she was always Britain's favorite granny and everything. Mind you, Queen Victoria used to take a lot of tea with that Scotsman, but not the Queen Mum. Although, there's really no telling just what she might have got up to. According to the illuminated one, David Icke, her madge, the Queen Mum, and most of the royals generally are in fact reptilian shapeshifters who regularly engage in human sacrifice and the consumption of infants. But probably not taking tea with the parson. And of course, the Queen Mum is dead now, and it isn't right to speak ill of the dead. One is dead chuffed, said Her Majesty the Queen, speaking to her regal reflection, cast back at her from an Ikea wall mirror in her private billiards room where the royal we keeps her extensive collection of space invaders machines handbags and the mummified prepuce of christ which was a present from the pope one is dead chuffed the monarch said once more reading from the card which was printed with big letters so she didn't need to wear her glasses because let's face it they do make her look old dead chuffed to attend this secret conclave as chairperson and casting vote and and a knock came at her chamber door who troubles one she inquired real class the car's here madam a menial or lackey or cat's paw replied is that billy driving asked the sovereign as ever the other replied bitchin said her majesty just love that badass billy Chapter 42 It was clear to those in the know, though those in the know numbered two, that a degree of easy intimacy existed between a certain Big Billy, who drove a black limo, and a certain Royal Betty, who ruled the British Isles. That the monarch, gliding down the front steps from Buckhouse, with a sprightliness surprising for one of her advanced years, customarily greeted the chauffeur with much use of the term soul brother, whilst he, patting the regal butt as it entered his auto, responded with such words as, Yo, my sweet pussy, and You can kiss my OBE any time. But as there were no witnesses to this, no definite proof can be found that it actually happened. And, well, it might be that this unlikely exchange was nothing more than wishful thinking. Although, whether upon the part of Big Billy, Royal Betty, or some third party, it is fruitless to speculate. The long black limo slid away over the gravel and out through the main gates of Buckhouse, scattering Japanese tourists before it, much to the mirth of the monarch who made soul fists with her waving hand. Perhaps. Mr. Mole of Kentire Cars was not one given to familiarity with his clients. 
The conveyance of the public was in his blood. Five generations of moles had plied their trade in the great metropolis before him, his great-great-grandfather driving one of the original handsome cabs. His name was Morris Mole, and he was the first cabbie to coin the phrase, I had that, fill in as applicable, in the back of my cab the other day. But this only to a fellow cabbie and never to a client. He was a professional, and such was his great-great-grandson. And so, when Mr. Mole of Kintyre Cars reached the secret rendezvous point where he was to make contact with and pick up a certain Ahab the Arab, the Sheik of the Desert Sands, he arrived early and waited patiently, reading a Sunday paper whose headlines spoke fearfully of escalating trouble in the Middle East and the strong probability of an ensuing nuclear holocaust. And, whilst doing this, he chewed on a Google's gobgum, of a type one rarely sees nowadays and gently tapped a highly polished boot heel in the dust. The dust was that of the Dockland persuasion, of that area of London Dockland that is always threatened with redevelopment, but somehow always manages to remain undeveloped. And disgusting, and desolate, and depressing, and other things that begin with the letter D. The limo was parked on a dock that was to be found upon a bit of bay. And it would have been of interest to fans of soul music to note that this was the very dock of the bay that Otis Redding had sat upon nearly five decades before, and watched the ships coming in, and the ships going out, and things of a maritime nature generally. The sound of a bosun's whistle alerted Mr. Mole, who folded away his newspaper, spat out his gobgum, buffed his toe caps on the rear of the opposing trouser legs, straightened his cap, and saluted as a Thames lighter, piloted by a Thames lighterman, drew up alongside Otis's sitting area, and a bassoon, all spiffed up in formal but outmoded livery, piped ashore a swarthy gentleman in the full Arabic attire. Flowing robes, dishcloth hat, and fan belt wraparound. Ahab the Arab drew London breath up his nostrils and spoke with timber through his beard. "'You are Mr. Mull?' he inquired. "'Mull,' said Mr. Mull. "'Mr. Mull.' Mole, said Ahab the Arab. That is satisfactory. I was unreliably informed that I was to be collected and driven by a Jedi. I am a Jedi, said Mr. Mole. At the last national census, it was discovered that more than 20% of the nation listed their religion as Jedi. The English, went the Arab, and he laughed. No wonder you never win the cricket. Mr. Mole smiled professionally and nodded politely. Had such a remark been made to him in a pub, however, by some bloody camel jockey that he wasn't being employed to drive, Mr. Mole would have employed his dimac and struck the blighter mighty blows to the skull, as naturally one would. But, smiling and nodding, he now swung open the rear door of the limo and did a little bowing of the head also as he aided his client into the car. A similar, in fact all but identical limo, stood double-parked in the seat-in, in a tiny cul-de-sac that it was going to be difficult to reverse out of. This limo was surrounded by small boys with sticky, inquisitive fingers and orange juice mouth masks, whatever they might be. The driver of this car, a Mr. Jones of We'll Keep a Welcome in the Hillside Motors, was no lover of small boys. Of small girls, yes. And of sheep, of course, for he was Welsh. Author's note. 
according to Anne Robinson, allegedly. End note. Mr. Jones owned a stick for such occasions as this, and a tube of lubricant for other situations. In the manner, indeed, of a Jedi, for curiously, this was the faith of Mr. Jones, he flourished this stick Jedi fashion, swirling it in great lightsaber arcs to a lack of alarm and distress of the sticky-fingered lads, whilst he awaited his client. His client, Mr. Bagshaw, was saying goodbye to his mum. Although aged 37 and with good prospects in the field of accountancy, Mr. Bagshaw, Bertie, it would have been to his mates, but mates Mr. Bagshaw had none, still occupied the bedroom that had been forever his in the family house that he had grown up in. As well as having no friends, Bertie, as he would have been called if he had, had also never owned to a girlfriend, had never kissed a woman. This might have been due, in part, to the slightly odd looks of Mr. Bagshaw. There was something about his head, the size of it, the dimensions. That head was much too big. It was a bit of a Jerry Anderson head. It made Mr. Bagshaw look very much like brains from Thunderbirds. Not that all women are necessarily put off by a huge head. Many women have no objection to any part of a man's body being huge, as long as it's clean. And Mr. Bagshaw was very clean. His mum had scrubbed his neck that very morning, and behind his ears, and made him clean his teeth twice, as he'd missed some hard-to-reach plaque the first time, which his mum had espied with the aid of a dentist's mirror that she'd won at a W.I. Whist drive in Crawley. Mr. Bagshaw's clothes were clean. His tweed-going-out jacket, with the leather patches on the elbows, was very clean, as was his checked shirt and knitted tie and his light brown corduroy trousers, and his polished Oxford brogues. Mr. Bagshaw's mother did unnecessary straightenings of her son's tie, then licked a corner of her gingham housecoat and worried at his chin with it, then lightly kissed him on the cheek, warned him against associating with liquor and loose women, as so many mums will do because they care, and sent him on his way. Mr. Bagshaw stepped lightly down the garden path, for his mother had cautioned him many times against dragging his feet. It looks slovenly, and it plays havoc with your sticka soles. He swung open the 1930s Sunray-style gate and made his way toward the waiting limo. Mr. Jones waved frantically with his stick. Mrs. Bagshaw closed the front door without slamming it. Mr. Bagshaw gazed at the sticky lads. The sticky lads caught Mr. Bagshaw's gaze. Some of these lads immediately pissed their pants. Others with stronger constitutions, did not, but all before the gaze of Mr. Bagshaw fled immediately and as fast as they could. "'Shall we away?' asked Mr. Bagshaw of Mr. Jones. And Mr. Jones, holding on to himself, nodded and said, "'Yes, sir.'" Mogador Firesword of Dragonslayer Car Hire, he had recently changed the name to avoid confusion with the breakfast cereal, never called any man sir, but for Lord Gort Frangos of the Bloody Axe, who slew Rimor Garethan on the plain of the Guckmo Plith, neath the mountains of Magadum, where might be found, but never entered, the cave of the hideous Kagulls, and so on and so forth and such like. He called no man, sir. And he wore chainmail beneath his chauffeur's uniform. And now he was here, on a Sunday morning, 
come to pick up a dog. A dog? said Mordegore Firesword to the very pleasant-looking lady who womaned the reception desk at Battersea Dogs' home. I am apparently here to pick up a dog. Then you've come to the right place, said the not altogether ungorgeous young woman, for this is a dog's home. I understand that, said Morgador Firesword. I'll bet you have hundreds of dogs here, don't you? Hundreds, said the beautiful lady. Sometimes thousands. And I'll bet you don't find homes for all of them. Sadly not. So you have to snuff them out, I suppose. We put them to sleep. That is the term we prefer. But it amounts to the same thing. The stunning creature nodded. Do you drop their heads off? asked Morgador Firesword. No, we certainly do not. Would you like me to do it for you, then? I do have my own sword. I call it Soul Freer the Second. Soul Freer the Second? Soul Freer the First got nicked at a gamer's con in Hinkley. Would you please leave the premise before I am forced to call the police? asked the veritable goddess of a bird. I have a chitty, said Morgador, flourishing same, for the dog. And you'll have to fill in another chitty, taking responsibility to cover any cleaning bills if it craps in my limo. The Battersea Venus examined the chitty. Ah, she said knowingly. You want Bob, I understand. More than I do, my pretty, said Morgador, leaning over the desk a little to cop a glimpse of cleavage. Bob, said the wondrous one. Bob the comical pup. That's what it says on the chitty. The breasts before him withdrew. Wait here, I will fetch him for you. But before I do, you have to fill in one of our chitties. Why? asked Morgador Firesword. Because Bob the Comical Pup is not just any young comical pup. He is a pup of outre abilities. Outre what? A chitty on the clipboard was thrust before him, and Morgador Firesword gave it a cursory once-over. What's this? he asked. Promise three. I vowed that I will take to my grave any confidences confided in me by Bob the Comical Pup. And I have to sign the Official Secrets Act? I told you, he's not just any young comical pup. Mr. Esau Good of Smack My Bitch Up Motors was not at Breeze Norton Airport to pick up just any old king of rock and roll. He was there in the company of many, many official chitties and high-security passes, and special military intervention to pick up the king of rock and roll, being flown in on a chartered Hercules via a complex route that evaded the defensive radar systems of 12 separate countries. Point of departure, unregistered. Point of arrival, Breeze Norton. Mr. Esau Good had also had to sign the Official Secrets Act, and he had been given an implant at the base of his skull. He had been assured by the masked surgeons who had performed this procedure against the will of Mr. Good that should Mr. Good mention the name of the gentleman that he would be conveying to Gunnersbury Park, even in passing, the voicing of this name would trigger the implant and blow his head clean off his shoulders. Mr. Good was somewhat upset by this circumstance, especially as he was something of a fan of the Big E and not averse to purchasing the occasional compilation disc or latest exploitation hit single. Author's note. Elvisploitation? End note. Christmas shopping was going to be tricky this year.
The Hercules transport loomed in the heavens, drew nigh unto Breeze Norton and ascended. Taxiing was done. Steps were wheeled out to it. A door swung open. And he stood framed by the opening. And he wasn't that fat anymore. He was, if anything, slender and trim. His hair, the jettest of blacks. His sideburns superb, and his cheekbones as killer as ever. He did wear the jumpsuit, though. The white rhinestoned number with the black diamante belt. But then he would wear that, wouldn't he? Because he was Elvis Presley. Mr. Esau Good lifted his bum from the bonnet of his limo and made his way towards the grounded aeroplane. There were many of those men in black types present, with the black suits and the sun specks, and many high-ranking military personnel. And what surprised Mr. Good, if anything could now surprise him, was the fact that all those present were so unsurprised. That Elvis was alive and well, and looking good surprised them not. But then... Come on now, none of us really believe that he's dead, do we? Mr. Good had never believed it. He knew that something fishy had gone on that day, in the bathroom, at Graceland. Rumors abounded, and no more so than within the higher car profession where chauffeurs are apt to accidentally overhear all manner of sensitive information and a certain underground grapevine spreads this info up and down the land. The word was out that Elvis's death had been faked because the king of rock and roll was engaged in work of national importance and that the president himself had sanctioned the deception. The word was out on the underground grapevine that Elvis was capable of traveling through time, aided by an alien vegetable that had taken up residence in the back of his head. Bury the time sprout, this vegetable was called. And who would be inclined to doubt this? Elvis descended from the plane pressed palms with assembled personages, and was led to the limo. "'Good day, sir,' said Elvis to Mr. Good. "'Good day, Mr.' and he almost said it. Elvis Presley entered the limo and was driven away. 